Uh, welcome to today's program. My name is Glenn Deason. I'm a professor at the University of uh, Southeastern Norway. Uh, my colleague here is Alexander Mercuris of the Duran. And the guest for today's discussion is Venkatesh uh, Varma, who uh, was in the Indian Foreign Service for more than 30 years. And among many positions you, uh, that you had there, uh, you were also the ambassador of India to the Russian Federation until 2021. Uh, so uh, welcome and yeah, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to your program. So, uh, well, this relationship between India and Russia is obviously of great importance. And uh, over the last year, it's become even more important. Um, probably a trend that will continue for the next years. So yeah, we were thinking you would be the ideal person to speak with to get some insights as yeah the former ambassador to Russia. Um, also, yeah, I met you first in uh, Moscow in 2019 at at the Indian Embassy, and uh, the last time I met you was in October. So I always appreciate your perspective. So again, thank you very much for your time. And uh, well, I thought uh, we could start off by discussing yeah the. The war uh, going on in Ukraine, uh, as uh, uh, India's perspectives are always uh, in high demand. So, and then we can shift more uh, later to the more general relations between India and Russia, both bilaterally, but also wider, I guess, in the format of uh, Eurasian and economic integration. Now, uh, I was wondering, can you uh, explain how you personally view this conflict? Uh, uh, and also, how do you explain India's position during this war, which, uh, uh, again, is uh, the, the focus of much attention? Yes, uh, of course, we in India are looking at the war with uh, continuing concern. Uh, uh, as we go now, probably into a year and a half since the active hostilities began in uh, February of last year, uh, of 2022. Uh, it's a protracted war. It's a it's a stalemated war in a sense, but it's not a stalemated war as um, exhaustion of uh, war aims or exhaustion of war means. They're quite the opposite. I think both sides are preparing for uh, renewed hostilities, and there's been uh, substantive military build-ups, both on the Russian side and on the Ukrainian side, in the last uh, you know, six months or so. Uh, in terms of war aims, uh, obviously the conflict has moved. Uh, uh, what was possible as a uh, what was thinkable as a possible peace settlement, uh, say in. April or May last year is now no longer uh, thinkable at all on on other side. Uh, so therefore, the war aims have, have only expanded uh, have only expanded with time. Uh, that said, I think uh, there is this talk about the spring offensive, uh, the so-called spring offensive. Broadly speaking. Uh, the Russians have avoided any major uh, offensives in the last six months. And they have grinded away at uh, the Ukrainian defenses. 
there is talk about how much uh, these defenses have been eroded. And I think Ukraine and its supporters, basically NATO and the United States, uh, are probably looking at the option that a counteroffensive is now needed to restabilize the war situation uh, to bring it back uh, in a manner that that would favor Ukraine. Uh, that is still to be seen. Uh, it's now almost uh, five, six months after the 300,000 uh, mobilization that Russia undertook in late autumn of last year. Um, Russian military tactics have learned. The Russian military is a learning arm, as we all know. So how they would fight this year as compared to how they fought last year, and last year were quite a few surprises in terms of, and quite a few instances of military incompetence. Whether that would be repeated this year or not, we will we'll have to wait and see. So therefore, there are four or five elements that are uh, that we need to watch. Uh, firstly, it is no longer a war between Russia and Ukraine. It is clearly a war between Russia and the West. Uh, a very strong economic dimension, a cyber dimension, uh, sanctions, energy. Uh, the issue of territoriality, how much Russia wants in terms of territory in Ukraine and how much Ukraine will be finally uh, required to accommodate Russian interests is still a very open question. Ukraine's position today is that there is absolutely no territory that that Russia will uh, will be able to hold. Uh, they want Russia out of every part of uh, Ukraine. Uh, in terms of escalation, military support from um, from NATO uh, has only escalated, as we have seen uh, over the last one year. I mean, uh, from javelins, which were essentially defensive weapons. Now there's talk about you know, you know tanks. Uh, uh, advanced, very advanced tanks are already there, and also uh, transfer of. Uh, uh, MiG-29 aircraft from uh, NATO inventories into uh, to, uh, to Ukraine. Um, there is also no let up on the issue of uh, confiscated assets of Russia. Uh, sanctions still continue to be very tight. In fact, there's more and more talk about uh, how assets will now be put to use in Ukraine for Ukraine's reconstruction and and uh, and that sort of stuff, and of course there is the new dimension of uh, war crimes and you know the naming of President Putin and the ICC charge sheet and things like that. So uh, essentially, what I'm saying is that a year and a half into the active phase of this current war. Uh, both war aims and war means have only escalated. So we are at a rather precarious uh, phase in this uh, era of conflict. And uh, is there a glimmer of hope of early resolution? Unfortunately, the answer is no. Can I first of all say thank you very much for that very, very mastery summary? Because 
I think this is perhaps for me the last point that you've just made. No real, no real sign of a diplomatic solution. I don't get the sense that anybody is looking for one, that any party to this conflict is in fact looking for a diplomatic solution at the moment. Certainly, there have been many attempts in the past to resolve the conflict in Ukraine through diplomatic means. None of those worked, and one can argue why. I mean, I would say quite obviously the Western side wasn't particularly interested in a diplomatic solution. They don't seem to be interested in a diplomatic solution now, the conflict goes on. And it seems to me that now from the Russian point of view, this is my own take, the calculus has also changed. They made attempts to seek diplomatic solutions previously. The Minsk agreement obviously been the most important, but now we've reached a situation where they too have decided that a diplomatic solution is probably not uh, something that can happen. Do you think an outside party might be able to step in and try and talk to the two sides, try to speak to them, try to suggest diplomacy as a way forward? Well, the role of outside mediation, outside facilitation, uh, I think there was a small window uh, in the spring of last year yeah, uh, April, Mar late March, early April. I think that window has been very firmly shut. Uh, there is some engagement. The Turks and the UN and people like that have have worked out on the Green Deal, and uh, there's been some uh, contacts on the protection of the Zaporozhnya nuclear power plant, um, facilitating the IED to to come up with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, some sort of framework to um, uh, for the nuclear safety of the plant. But war aims, I think, uh, as we both agree, uh, both sides have only escalated uh, their war aims. I think the fundamental obstacle today are twofold. First is both sides retain the hope and the expectation that the military situation on the battlefield will eventually turn decisively in their favor. And that acts as an inhibitor for them to consider any partial uh, um, uh, solutions at the present moment. Now, this might change once the spring offensive uh, period, in a sense, is uh, gone through and exhausted. Uh, we don't know how both both sides will emerge after the spring offensive phase, uh, spring and and summer offensive to uh, to be fair. But simultaneously, there has been another trend where uh, the government in Kiev has categorically ruled out not engaging with President Putin and his present setup in the Kremlin. Now, while Russia has not uh, has not been so explicit in its uh, uh, exclusion of President Zelensky in the manner that President Zelensky has excluded President Putin. But clearly, Russian assessment, it appears to me, is that uh, the government in Kyiv today 
is not a master of its own house. And therefore, it is in Russian interest to talk to and negotiate when the time comes. The time is not now. The time is uh, when the time comes with the actual masters of the military situation in uh, in Ukraine, which means that uh, they will look for not just territory, uh, they will look for not just degradation of civilian uh, infrastructure in Ukraine, but also to weaken and uh, possibly replace the present uh, uh, ruling setup in, um, uh, in Ukraine. Whether that is viable or not, I don't know. Uh, much will depend on the how the military situation pans out. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, almost entirely uh, the positions of both sides will be related to how the military situation pans out. Before we, uh, well, that's, again, thank you for that. Can I now ask a specific question and, you know, about India's position as a possible mediator? Because we've heard a great deal about China. We've heard a great deal about Turkey. India, however, is in a unique position. It is a, a great power. It's it's one of the great powers in the world today. It has very good relations with Russia, and we'll be talking about that soon. It has had good relations with Ukraine, and it also has good relations with the West. China at the moment does not have good relations with the West. And of course, from a Western point of view, and the Western powers are Ukraine's major sponsors, that means that they would not welcome Ukraine, uh, Chinese mediation in this conflict. But India has positioned itself differently. It's, as I said, managed the extraordinary feat of being on good terms with everybody. Now, is there any conceivable circumstance or situation or possibility that India might step forward and play a positive role here. I mean, India has experience of mediation. And as a diplomat, you will, of course, know that, you know, in 1965, in a conflict when India was in a conflict with Pakistan, the Russians actually, to some extent, mediated a cessation of the hostilities there. So it's not as if India and Russia haven't had some, you know, ex exchanges on mediation ideas. But of course, today, the world is very different India is in a very strong position. Is that something that anybody in India might conceivably be thinking? You are right to point out that uh, India has positioned itself well. India was always well positioned. And I think uh, during the past year and a half when active hostilities began uh, in Ukraine, uh, India has uh, maintained and, in fact, strengthened that position. It has not condemned Russia. Uh, it is uh, deeply uncomfortable with the fact that military force has been used. Um, uh, principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity are of importance to India. I mean, it's part of the uh, UN system and part of international law. But India, at the same time, has not accepted the Western narrative on Ukraine that uh, uh, February of uh, 1920, uh, uh, 2022, uh, the commencement of the war was completely unprovoked. 
and it was entirely the fault of Russia. I don't think India has bought into that narrative, and it is essentially uh, that uh, narrative does not relate to reality. As you yourself mentioned, there was a long period where there was opportunities for peace uh, during the Minsk Agreement, uh, opportunities that were, in my view, not fully utilized by both sides. Uh, uh, so war was not inevitable. Uh, uh, modus vivendi was possible, uh, including, I think, the last opportunity for a modus vivendi was when President Putin met President Biden in Geneva in the summer of 21. Uh, and when the summit took place itself, uh, have, there was, I think, a glimmer of hope both in Moscow and in Washington that things could be worked out. It's, it still remains a mystery why the understandings reached at Geneva broke down by November and December of 21. And then we went into... Uh, we do have extremely good, solid relations with Russia based on uh, trust, uh, based on partnership, uh, based on the fact that our leaderships sort of know each other very well. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has uh, excellent personal relations with President Putin. Uh, we have maintained those contacts. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi has spoken to President Putin uh, several times. He's had a meeting with him in Samarkand of, uh, uh, on the sidelines of the SCO when he did give a message, public message, that uh, this is not an era of war. We've had contacts. Foreign Minister Lavrov has visited Delhi. Our foreign minister has been to uh, to Moscow. Um, so diplomatically, I think we've kept the doors open, which is the right thing to do. We have also increased our economic engagement with Russia, uh, especially in the field of oil and trade. Uh, um, you know. Two years ago, our bilateral trade used to be about 10 to 11 billion dollars. Today, we do a bilateral trade. Uh, last year was uh, around 38 billion dollars. Um, this is, I think, the oil trade increase with Russia is not just a function of our relations with Russia, which which are excellent. Uh, there is no doubt about that. But it is also India's ability to leverage the larger operationalization of multipolarity that is emerging in the international system. Uh, you know, we've also utilized and leveraged our good relations with the West uh, in, in taking this thing forward. We also have strong defense relations with Russia, which is which this war has impacted in terms of space supplies and things like that. But uh, that is something that we are confident of working out uh, in the near future. We also have good relations with Ukraine. Um, and Prime Minister Modi kept up uh, uh, communication and dialogue with President Zelensky, spoken to him a couple of times. Uh, recently, we hosted the Deputy Foreign Minister of, uh, of Ukraine, um, um, Madam Zakharova. You know, she was here. Uh, and our message remains the same. Uh, we would like this war to be 
brought to a stage where dialogue and diplomacy can resume. We do not believe that uh, war can produce uh, permanent uh, solutions that will be sustainable over a period of time. And uh, the fact is that unless the two parties get together, so in terms of India as a peace seeker, I think we've had a very consistent public messaging position. For India to transition from a peace seeker to a peacemaker, I think we'll have to just wait to see when the opportunity presents itself. And the opportunity will present itself only when the two parties concerned uh, give up the notion that the battlefield will turn decisively in their favor. And as I said, presently, neither side is prepared to draw that conclusion from the, uh, from the battlefield situation on the ground. Well, let me, let me just first say I, I agree with uh, that assessment. Obviously, uh, Ukraine has uh, gambled a lot now on this last counteroffensive uh, coming up this spring. But also I see quite uh, optimistic uh, mood on the Russian side that uh, Ukrainian defense have been grinded down and they're also preparing their own massive offensive. So I don't think it would be possible with any uh, diplomatic settlement before well, until after the spring, when both sides had a chance to yeah, pull off their offensive uh, to see whether or not one can come on top or if it will be a stalemate. But um, I was curious about if if China, sorry, if India would be uh, active in terms of not just mediating, but also producing a proposal for an agreement. I was wondering if it would uh, differ much from what China said, uh, although being a different uh, uh, actor presenting it, because I think that a key problem was not necessarily the Chinese proposal, but rather who put it forward. Because again, the Americans shut it down before uh, well, they could even uh, hit the table. And I, I don't think they would have acted in this way against India as uh, as this would be a friend. Um, but um, uh, but uh, but but uh, again, the, I think a lot of weight now is being shifted towards uh, Asia and especially India in terms of diplomacy, because usually we would look towards some kind of a negotiation taking place in Helsinki or in Geneva. But again, uh, neutrality has collapsed now in Europe where, you know, Finland, uh, Switzerland, they are all now participants in this conflict. So it's very hard <laughs> to actually have anyone negotiate. And, uh, you know, while in, in the global south, we tend to see a more nuanced position where they most countries seem to be uncomfortable with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and not supporting it. On the other hand, uh, as, as you also suggested, uh, this is not merely a, a conflict between two states. There's also a wider conflict between NATO and Russia in which, well, let's be honest, NATO is not innocent in this conflict either. So, so again, there's, um, there's, there's, no, there's no trust here to build any, uh, to, to have any diplomatic uh, movements. I mean, here in Europe, we had the Macron going to China. He was going to pressure uh, Xi Jinping to, you know, make uh, Putin uh, come to negotiations, but but they haven't put forward a uh, negotiation proposal. Effectively, they want the Chinese to pressure Russia not to negotiate, but to to capitulate or <laughs> yeah, to to pressure its defeat, which obviously they would never do. As uh, that's not what a uh, negotiator is supposed to do. Uh, so I was just wondering. Uh, 
this 12-point plan of China, if, if this would be presented by India, would India have made many differences or many, many changes to it? Or does this, to a large extent, reflect what India is after as well? You see, any peace plan to work would have to address a new balance between principle and practicality. The Russia-Ukraine war is, in a sense, symbolic of the breakdown of the equilibrium between principle and practical security in Europe uh, that was built up over a period of many decades. And that has happened because uh, uh, Europe, uh, NATO, and the United States, in a sense, uh, practically had no viable solution on how to engage with Russia in the post-Cold War period. It is a failure of engagement. Uh, uh, the failure emanated from the fact that uh, it was premised on uh, a presumption of Russian weakness. Uh, five waves of NATO expansion took place. Uh, they were successful because each wave uh, led to the other and there was no forceful Russian response. And this NATO strategy of expansion was successful until the moment that Russia responded with force. And, and the moment that Russia responded with force, which is uh, in the period between 2014 and uh, uh, 2022, uh, NATO's policy of expansion was, in a sense, becomes a failure. I mean, you, uh, it can be argued, as it has been, that expansion of NATO is a success of NATO's policy. I don't, I don't see that uh, in that way. In the Cold War period, uh, NATO was an extremely successful uh, defensive military alliance because it had one clear central front. Uh, it had well-protected flanks. Uh, there was one clear defined uh, military doctrine for NATO. And there's one clear leadership in, uh, you know, within NATO. Today, you can count at least three different central fronts in NATO. Uh, NATO is already, in a sense, through proxy, already involved with one front, which is uh, the Russia-Ukraine front. Uh, you have a Baltic front that has been added on, which is expands, uh, extends uh, NATO's uh, land frontiers, you know, almost doubles them. Uh, you have the Black Sea and the Caucasus already in the, in the way. And NATO is already talking about expansion into the Eurasian landmass, which is Central Asia and things like that. Now, uh, there is nothing worse than having an alliance with multiple, uh, uh, you know, multiple strategies. That was never the problem uh, during the Cold War period, but that is a problem today uh, uh, for NATO. So, therefore, while, while Russia, Ukraine uh, problem is one aspect of this, uh, and so the immediate uh, objective would be, in practical terms, uh, not just reiteration uh, of principle. And the uh, the Chinese uh, thing, uh, please for formula, the twelve points, were in a sense, uh, uh, I guess, well intentioned on part of China, but clearly had contradictions which uh, cannot be resolved uh, easily. You know, point one of the Chinese plan uh, looks for sovereignty and territorial integrity, uh, the you know, protection of this principle. Uh, 
point two uh, talks about uh, you know legitimate security interests of all all countries, and uh, you know uh, uh, Russia clearly believes that point two uh, is in direct contradiction to point one. You know, so uh, you need not go to point three uh, to see that the Chinese plan is not going to proceed. The any peace plan coming forward, which has any chance of success, has to be built on trust, communication with both sides, and an encouragement by to both sides that a total military solutions cannot be found for these sort of protracted uh, conflictual issues. The first step should be a ceasefire. Second step should be to to deepen the ceasefire so that channels of communication can open. Channels of communication not just between Russia and Ukraine, but between Russia and the West. And presently, uh, the channels of communication are not just minimal, they're less than minimal, except for a few um, hotlines and deconfliction communication uh, channels between Russia and the United States. I don't see any communication channels Essentially, we need to get back to the habit of mutual accommodation. European security today has collapsed because the ethic of mutual accommodation has died. And that has to be restored either through conviction or through exhaustion of the Russia military, uh, you know, the Russia Ukraine military conflict. Fourth, a realization by the parties directly concerned that the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the Russia-Western conflict, has had a huge global impact, uh, which is not talked about, but the global south is particularly concerned that a European war is being conducted with little regard for the consequences that it would have on the rest of the world in terms of food prices, inflation, energy prices, commodities, disruption in, uh, in transportation links, uh, everything that is expensive becomes more expensive because of the political overheads of the cost uh, of the war. And the almost total deafness of the parties concerned to take into account the uh, implications that it has for the, for the larger international system. Now, 20 years ago, the Global South would have complained, protested, but it would have been probably reconciled to the fact that uh, these would have little effect. That is no longer so. Uh, the Global South is not just, uh, uh, is not accepting the Western definition of this conflict, but they also have views on how this conflict should be brought to an end so that uh, the negative impact on the Global South is. Uh, uh, is minimized. So there is there are multiple voices that are being heard in the international system. And that, I think, is a good sign because that is also a sign of multipolarity. Uh, there are differing views on, uh, on the global situation um, and uh, different parties uh, need to be accommodated in a sense their interests have to be taken into account. I think India would need to take all these four propositions forward. And do we have the diplomatic bandwidth? The answer is yes. Do we have the summit level, the leadership level access? The answer is yes. Um, do you think uh, uh, India would be 
uh, acceptable, not just to the parties directly concerned, but to the larger international community, especially in the global south? The answer is an emphatic yes. Uh, we're just waiting for the right circumstances to come about. Now, India is today presently hosting uh, this year. We are uh, we are the chair of the G20 process. We're also chair of the of the SEO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, two important summits that will take place in Delhi this year. Uh, not just bilaterally and our good contacts uh, with various countries concerned, but the responsibility that we have this year as as the chair of the G20 and as uh, the SEO chair gives us not just an added responsibility, but an added scope for action of getting dialogue going. Um, uh, it is a difficult process. It is an uphill process. But I think uh, uh, India is very clear that uh, we would not like uh, conflict situations in which uh, the majority of the countries in the world have, are, uh, are bystanders, and in fact, victimized bystanders, should have no say in how these conflicts are uh, resolved. So I think these discussions are getting uh, more and more uh, um, uh, space in the discussions in the SEO, in the discussion in the G20. And I think uh, per se, the G7 on one side, uh, Russia on the other side, uh, the supporters of Ukraine on the third side, uh, do have to now take into account that this is not a conversation that can be concluded uh, just based on their own interests. There is a larger ecosystem, a larger um, global system that uh, that expects uh, uh, that this war be brought to a, a quick end, uh, not just based on the interests of the warring parties concerned, but also based on the impact that they are having on the larger international community. I find that extremely interesting. And again, thank you. Now, you, you've talked uh, very eloquently and very insightfully about the Global South, about multipolarity. Now, when one reads commentaries by Russian leaders, by Mr. Putin, by Foreign Minister Lavrov, they do seem to have an understanding that the world is changing, that we are moving towards a more multipolar system. And that if you look at their race, recent foreign policy doctrine, the one that they've just enumerated, they seem to talk in the same way there. They also talk about the importance of a strategic relationship between Russia and India. It's, it's there, as well as China. People talk much about the Russian relationship with China, but the Russian relationship with India is given equal weight. <laughs> this is perhaps a little... Um, perhaps I'm asking a bit more than I should of a former ambassador, but from your various contacts in Moscow with people in Moscow, I mean, do you feel that this is indeed a genuine and sincere and solid sentiment on the part of Russian leaders, not just Russian leaders, but perhaps the broader Russian information, inform, uh, commentary society? That that you know the, the the former superpower, which was Russia, now acknowledges that the world has changed. That there are now many poles around the world. That it's no longer a 
binary system, the Soviet Union versus the West, Russia versus the West. I mean, what was your feelings about the sentiments about this in Russia? You see, it's a very interesting question, and it can be sort of explained at uh, at a couple of levels. Um, the great change that is now happening in Russian foreign policy, it started with President Putin's coming to power 20 years ago, but the Russia-Ukraine war and this great divide with the West, uh, not just a divide, I think it is more than a divide, it is a schism with the West, is an extraordinarily important point in Russia's worldview. For the last 300 years, Russia has seen itself as a big power, a great power, but as a European great power with large interests on the Eurasian continent. It has had various experiences of that, some not happy, some very critical for European security, um, some totally devastating uh, in terms of how European uh, security, in a sense, marginalized Russia. Russia engaged with Europe because in the international system, the last 300 years, Western Europe was, in a sense, one of the global centers of world power because there were strong economies, industrialized economies, uh, strong maritime powers, and in conjunction both in the First and Second World War with their alliance with the United States, there were truly formidable uh, uh, players in the international system. So Russia both had an interest, an inclination, a cultural inclination to engage with uh, with them. And I think the Cold War period, uh, post Yalta and Potsdam, in a sense, brought a framework of engagement between, uh, between Russia, the, then the Soviet Union and Russia, uh, and Western Europe along with the United States. Now the Russia-Ukraine war uh, events leading up to this have, in a sense, completely broken down that, in, that arrangement. Russia today feels, again, very threatened on its peripheries. <laughs> and the threat comes from Western Europe and from the United States. In the past, Russia addressed these threats to its peripheries but re-engaged with, uh, with Europe. Large, largely according to the fact after the, in the Second World War, they, uh, they, uh, they acquired a lot of territory in Eastern Europe, uh, which became uh, Soviet satellite states. But that is no longer so. So part of the breakdown of the communication with the West and, and with the United States is also a turning away from Europe which is extraordinarily significant. It has not happened in the last 300 years. 
Now that has dovetailed into Russia also realizing that the as the world is changing, it needs to pay more attention to the Asian part of the Russian Federation. Relations with China and with India were always mentioned as important. But relations with Eurasia as a whole, Eurasian integration, Eurasia, Eurasian continent, and relations with major countries in uh, in the East, uh, particularly China and India, now has been doubly reinforced. So significantly, the foreign policy document of the Russian Federation um, has a very important passages, uh, paragraphs on their self-reflection. How does Russia see itself? Today, Russia sees itself as a civilizational state. So it is not just merely in terms of uh, political uh, geographical boundaries. It sees uh, its interests going far beyond um, the actual political boundaries of the Russian Federation. Secondly, it sees itself as a Eurasian state. And thirdly, while it keeps the door open for dialogue, recommencing dialogue with, with Europe and the United States at some stage on the basis of uh, equality and uh, mutuality of interest, I don't think there is any expectation today in Moscow that this will happen anytime soon. Now, the difference now is that not only is Moscow turning away from somewhere, is Moscow is distinctly turning towards somewhere else, elsewhere. That, I think, is a fundamental revolution in Russian foreign policy. Now, I worked three times in Moscow. Uh, I was posted in this in the last days of the Soviet Union between 1990 and 1992-93. The Soviet Union and the Russian Federation were essentially Western powers in Europe. I mean, there is no doubt about it. President Putin came to power in 2000, and the first few years, Russia continued to be a Western power culturally, strategically, uh, a Western power with strong Eurasian interests. But I think a change came about in President Putin's thinking. And if you were to ask me, what is President Putin's uh, contribution to Russia's own thinking on Russia's place in the world? I think uh, he has had a tremendous impact on Russian thinking on how Russia should see itself as a Eurasian power, which is not easy. The Russian elite, and our good friend uh, Glenn Deason has a fantastic book on Russian conservatism. And the roots of cons Russian conservatism, have, uh, many of the roots, not all the roots, uh, lie in how to deal with uh, their uh, their Western partners. Now, Russia's relations with China also have a separate history of their own. Today, Russia has the best 20 years of its relations with China in the last 200 years. And both factors are significant. 
In contrast, Russia has the best relations with India in the last 70 years, in the last 70 years. We've never had a bad phase. And you might ask, why is that so? Essentially because I think there is a, a strategic convergence of our global interests. You know, neither country's growth is a threat to uh, the other country, number one. We have, in a sense, uh, extended to each other uh, support uh, during difficult times. You know, the Soviet assistance to India over the uh, over 30, 40 years is absolutely critical to India's development. When Russia was down and about in the 1990s, it is India which still held the trust and the hope and the confidence that Russia will bounce back. And our relationship with Russia is far too important to be set aside through temporary difficulties. And that has paid us huge dividends. Not having a border, I think, is important because we avoid common problems that appear between neighbors. But in the common neighborhood, we have common interests. We have good relations with uh, Central Asia. If uh, we see no difficulty in, uh, Russia sees no difficulty in expansion and increase of India's interests in Central Asia, because it seems India's uh, influence is benign, not contradictory to, um, to Russian interests. Uh, thirdly, India is the only country in the world where Russia has a genuine friendship, which is in the shortlist for countries which will grow the fastest in the next 10 years and are slated to uh, become one of the largest economies in the world. So for Russia, it's an investment in India, just like um, uh, India invested uh, in Russia for its own interests. So there's a remarkable lack of clash of direct interests. There is a, a good uh, personal rapport between our leaders and there is a strong public sentiment that uh, the, that is taking place. Now, coming to the current situation, Russia first instance of shaking away the stranglehold of Western unipolarity was Primakov's idea of Russia, India, China. The first manifestation of the appeal to multipolarity was the Russia, was the RICS, RIC. And it began in the late, uh, in the late 90s. And that was Russia's attempt, that was Primakov's attempt for a weak Russia, drawing the conclusions that the West was <clears throat> not in the least interested in accommodating Russian interests, except through uh, on terms of Western dominance. So Russia, in a sense, started reaching out to the larger international system and the Russia-India-China proposal came about. But it has now moved on. Russia-China-India is now one of the earlier manifestations of multipolarity. Now we have BRICS. And as one estimate says that the BRICS economies are expected to outstrip the uh, uh, you know the total GDP of the of the G seven, 
uh, we have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And the interest that countries that are showing in engagement with the SEO and the BRICS itself is a manifestation of the strong urge for multipolarity in the international system. You have a wide range of countries which are interested. Iran is interested in joining the SEO. It, it, it has already done so. Um, Saudi Arabia and a number of African countries from, uh, from North Africa are interested. Uh, there are countries in Southeast Asia which want to be more. Uh, uh, there are countries in Latin America, areas where there have been strong American interest. And now, so therefore, both bilaterally and multilaterally, India-Russia relations, in a sense, have spawned um, certain tendencies in the international system, uh, which I think are not only positive, but in keeping with the times of how uh, more countries want to be engaged in decision-making at various levels. Um, so going forward, I think we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, tailwind uh, for us. Of course, the international system is, uh, is in a very difficult phase because multipolarity, when we began the process in the late 90s, the general expectation was that it would be a negotiated multipolarity in the sense that you could sit across the table and look for a certain amount of redistribution that can be negotiated, redistribution of power, of decision-making, of influence. But unfortunately, I think we are now in a phase where it appears that rather than having negotiated multipolarity, I think we are getting into a phase where uh, it would be a contested multipolarity and how the Russia-Ukraine war pans out will uh, have a huge impact on how multipolarity, um, but the genie of multipolarity is already out of the bottle. I think it's very, very difficult now to put it back. Yeah. I I found your yeah, comments very interesting. And, uh, yeah, and I think that often what people, uh, especially in the West, misses is uh, when we all the sanctions on Russia, that uh, the assumption is often that when Russia leans towards India or China, that this is a temporary way to avoid sanctions <clears throat> with the plan of re-engaging with Europe as done in the past. But, uh, but again, this also linked to what we talked about before, because in uh, it was in January of 1994, you actually had President Clinton saying, you know, if we expand NATO, we have this risk of redividing Europe again and alienating Russia. However, uh, seemingly the consensus was that, you know, they're only becoming weaker anyways in Russia. They have nowhere else to go than the West. So, you know, we, we don't really have to take their consideration into place and effectively yeah, just push on. Uh, but this is... Um, yeah, but the, the the Russians kept on holding on to this ambition for this uh, greater Europe, which would be an inclusive pan-European security architecture. But uh, but I think that this broke in 2014 when uh, well in the West our Western governments uh, supported toppling the government in Ukraine, which kind of communicated it would not be a bridge, but it would be this front line against Russia instead. And this was when Russia very openly began to promote this idea of the greater Eurasian partnership, uh, effectively a huge economic pivot to the East. And that's why I thought it was interesting you mentioned this 300-year shift because, you know, this uh, shift towards Europe happened under Peter the Great. 
uh, in the early 1700s. So this is yeah, you know, going on for 300 years, and we, and this has now come to an end, uh, both because of uh, intentions and capabilities. Because uh, you mentioned Peribakov, but in uh, 1990s, uh, either China or India were had the economic uh, capabilities or the intention to, uh, to to push seriously for a multipolar system. But obviously, this is very very different today, and um, and uh, yeah. So that's why I think uh, India is this very well, interesting or important part of this multipolar game, because, not game, multipolar uh, system, because uh, the you know the Russian. Indian relationship. I always argue that it's very underutilized because, as you pointed out so yeah, clearly, it's completely absent of any problems. Almost, it's a, it's a, it's a great relationship, uh, all the trust in the world. But in terms of the economic connectivity, it hasn't really been utilized to you know to to this great potential. But this is something that we see now shifting in a in a huge way. So, so that's why I think uh, you know, when if this war would be over tomorrow, I don't see why. Russia would sacrifice any economic ties with India, uh, and uh, while going back to you know to some dreams about the Europe, which will you know remain divided. So, uh, sorry, I was yeah just comments. I think yeah, Alexander had something. Uh, <laughs> I was muted, but not at all. I I would just add one thing since you since I'm speaking, which is of course. Uh, uh, the ambassador spoke about a 70-year relationship, good relationship between India and Russia. And I don't think people, I, mean, I know the Russian side of this, but I don't think people in the West perhaps appreciate how strong and deep that relationship is. I mean, the first um, you know, person that I, European, if you like, that I met who'd read the entire Rig Veda was a Russian, in, and you know apparently the Russians have translated the Rig Veda. They're interested in Indian culture. The first, uh, uh, the last Indian official, the last uh, uh, foreign official Joseph Stalin met before he died was Ambassador Krishna Menon, who was Khrushchev and Bulganin going to um, India in I think it was in 1955 in the mid 50s. There was a the very strong relationship that developed through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. There was contacts and there was Indira Gandhi. I remember Moraji Desai going to Moscow. It's been an intense relationship. And um, certainly on the Russian side, of course, they have been interested in Europe because Europe is where the power was for a long, long time before in the 19th century. As we know, India was not free. But since India became free, Indian-Russian ties have grown and they've maintained themselves and they've sustained themselves. And there's always been that interest. And one feels that with India now becoming a great power, absolutely fast, one of, I think, actually the fastest growing economy in the world at the moment, with India becoming a great power, why would the Russians turn back on all of that and, you know, turn their backs on India in order to re-engage with Europe? Why would they want to turn their backs on multipolarity, given that, in a, in a sense, the relationship with India 
was one of the things that drew the Russians towards multipolarity in the first place. Why would they turn their back on that enormous relationship, given, as I said, its future, its prospects in the future and this enormously solid past? Indeed. (laughs) You know, uh, and that applies to India as well. You see, we have very critical relations with Russia in the defense sector. And that will go forward several decades. India has excellent bilateral relations with the United States and with many of the European powers. And I think it is a matter of sophistication of Russian uh, diplomacy that Russia understands uh, that India's rise will require its greater engagement with the West, largely on account of the fact that the restrictions that the West can impose can have a negative impact of India if India is not able to, in a sense, navigate those restrictions. And India, in the last 20 years, whether in the nuclear field, in the economic field, in the technological field, we've made tremendous strides in our relations with the United States and with key players in the uh, in Europe. Russia has not seen this as a zero-sum game, provided, of course, um, uh, there are a certain limits to which um, India's relations with the United States or with Europe are uh, put under. Um, India does not intend to have a military alliance with the United States. India intends to keep its own independent posture, its own independent thinking on global issues, and would decide uh, global issues on its own merits. That is precisely in Russian thinking, the definition of multipolarity. The Russian complaint against the against Europe, and sometimes I would even say the Russians overdo this, is the complete disdain that Russia today has for European countries, for countries in Europe, largely in account of the fact that they have lost a Russian view the capacity to think and act for themselves vis-a-vis the United States. And you could see this building up, this disdain in Russia building up on the European role in the Minsk process on both in France and Germany and the other countries in Europe. And the way the United States has dominated the uh, Ukrainian discourse in Europe, uh, probably the Russians are not are so wrong. Uh, I mean, I must say, uh, you know, they have, in a sense, been proven right because uh, though President Macron uh, recently made, again, made a few comments on strategic autonomy for Europe and Europe should define its own role, uh, which, in a sense, is absolutely critical for the success of multipolarity. You cannot have multipolarity just confined to Russia, India, China, a few countries in the Middle East. Multipolarity has to finally emerge where even European countries need to speak and act for themselves. This does not, in our view, 
mean that multipolarity is instinctively anti-American. I think that is not an Indian view. Uh, and I don't think that is a European view either. And in more normal times, I would, I would venture to say that it would not even be a Russian view. But these are not normal times for Russia, so we, we, we can't expect them to give that sort of uh, space for uh, uh, with regard to uh, their relations with the United States, because largely on account of the fact that mutual respect and deterrence between Russia and the United States has collapsed. And this deterrence, but not just nuclear deterrence, deterrence was based on the fact that there were certain things you could do and not do vis-a-vis the other country in geopolitical terms. And that geopolitical understanding was, in a sense, nailed down in Yalta and Poster. It was largely respected with some aberrations during the Cold War period. It it started eroding after 1991, could have been resurrected again, and the Russians made this proposal of strengthening the OSCE, of having a European home. You know, there were various proposals that came about. None of them worked. And simultaneously, the Americans systematically dismantled um, the uh, various treaties that they had put in place with the Soviets and then later with the Russian Federation. And now we've come to a stage where we are at the brink of a complete collapse of the international arms control architecture. So in a sense, deterrence has collapsed between Russia and the United States. And uh, the Russians have tried, and I, I would suspect, I would say, in, uh, in in diplomatic terms, it's been a failure on part of Russia to restore deterrence and goods, sensible decision-making in Washington, short of using military force in Ukraine. And the earliest occasion that I think that some form of deterrence in a political sense can be restored in relations between Russia and the United States is how the battle battles of uh, spring and summer in Europe, uh, in Ukraine will pan out. And that is why the war in Ukraine, in Russia's mind, is no longer just about Europe. They want to reestablish their military credentials in the eyes of Washington, D.C., because all other manners of engagement have not convinced the Americans that uh, the Russians are a worthy, worthy opponent. They're not even, uh, you know, they are. They're not even an opponent. Uh, you know, they're not just an opponent. They're not even a worthy opponent. A worthy opponent of the manner in which uh, both sides engaged with each other in the Cold War period and 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 for some years after that. So there is a fundamental disequilibrium, disequilibrium in the international structure. While multipolarity is breaking out in various parts, in in various forms and various parts of the world, the central problem of relations between Russia and the United States remains unresolved and is in deep disrepair because the old understandings have broken down and the new understandings are not in place. And the country that is best positioned to, in a sense, position itself and exploit this 
big vacuum at the heart of the international international security structure is China. And that is both, in a sense, good for China and not so good for countries which are now at the receiving end of a very assertive Chinese policy. Now, you can't blame China for exploiting the openings that both Russia and the United States have provided. So in from our part of the world, <coughs> while in Europe, there's uh, this contested problem between Russia and a Russian concept of European security and the American concept of European security have come clash are clashing headlong in your in Ukraine. There is a parallel process taking place in the Indo-Pacific in our part of the world, where China is drawing new lines, reflective of its new stature, its new influence, in a manner that is more and more unilateral, more assertive. Uh, more in keeping with, uh, so while China promotes multilateralism and multipolarity elsewhere, it actually acts in a manner that it would like to make the Indo-Pacific, you know, our part of the world, more unipolar than multipolar. So there are these parallel processes also that we need to take into account. There too, I would say that India and Russia have more common interests than is commonly believed. For example, in Central Asia, you know, a weakening of Russian influence in, in Central Asia would leave open the field after, again, a period of three, four hundred years for other countries to play a role. Uh, it is true that the Central Asian states have an agency of their own. They are independent states. They have a vision. They have, they have their own aspirations for their place in the world. Uh, but that should be done at a pace that they are comfortable with and not uh, not in a way that, uh, for example, um, Chinese assistance or Chinese assertions, uh, not just on economic trade and technological aspects, but also on how various uh, border issues that address, especially between India and China. So there, there is, uh, you know, there is a separate set of problems that are brewing in the international system. I, I sometimes get, uh, when you look at uh, India's role in the world, sometimes I get this uh, flashback, uh, but re the re recall of the of the great game in the 19th century in which, uh, uh, you know, you had the British-Russian rivalry for economic connectivity with India. So obviously Britain had this mar maritime empire while Russia was expanding through Central Asia to, well, connect with India. And uh, well, to some extent, uh, it resembles a little bit with this greater Eurasia concept in which you have economic connectivity across the Eurasian continent vis-a-vis -vis the more American-promoted Asia, uh, sorry, the Indo-Pacific region in which it's more the maritime powers organizing it from the periphery. Uh, obviously, and the difference being that India is now a subject instead of a, no, sorry, it's an object instead of a, uh, no, sorry, it's a subject instead of an object of, of security. Uh, but uh, again, as, uh, as we've seen, China doesn't, no, sorry, India doesn't pick a side. It uh, wants to engage with both formats, uh, which is the neutral position, which I think is a good approach, I would add. Uh, but within that format, I was wondering if you could say something about this. Uh, we read more and more about this uh, international north-south transportation corridor. It was uh, um, in which, uh, yeah, you have this uh, transportation link from Russia, Iran, uh, and India uh, through both uh, yeah, railway well, roads as well as uh, ports between 
uh, India and uh, Iran, but also Iran and Russia through the Caspian. So, um, again, uh, how to what extent? Because it seemed to have stalemated for 20 years, and then now it seems to be moving forward. And uh, again, I mean, many in the West have seen it as a, as a critical, been perhaps critical of it, but. Uh, I was thinking in the West it should be in our interest because uh, in this you know, Eurasian integration now, uh, China is the dominant actor. You would think that it would be in the West's interest to have more uh, diversification of connectivity, that is, the emergence of other poles. Uh, so if India and Russia cooperates in this uh, greater, you know, they would all have less reliance on China and you would have more of a balance of dependence across the Eurasian continent. But uh, but anyways, it doesn't tend to be much nuance uh, at the moment due to this conflict. But I was wondering if you could say something about this uh, international north-south transportation corridor uh, and in terms of uh, to what extent it has uh, significance for India, what would be the complications, uh, opportunities, risks and such. <coughs> you see, uh, Eurasian integration and Eurasian connectivity was a fact of life, in fact, was the reason for its vitality in history five, six hundred years ago. That connectivity broke down for various reasons, including the spread of uh, various empires and you know the you know the British Indian Empire was there for almost 300 years. So in a sense, we are, as we engage with Eurasia, we are only re-establishing uh, linkages, uh, not just in terms of trade routes, in terms of physical connectivity, but also in terms of uh, people's cultural and civilizational connectivity. Tibet today is the home to religions uh, whose histories connect more with India than with China. Uh, in St. Petersburg, in the uh, Institute of Oriental Manuscripts uh, Library, there are six to 700 absolutely fabulous manuscripts, which chronicle the linkages between Buddhism as a connecting factor between India and, uh, and the larger inner Asia, you know, Xinjiang, uh, you know, you know, present-day uh, Western Tibet, uh, Eastern uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, you know, that entire region. The North-South Corridor began about 20 years ago, and it was intended as a way for uh, trade connectivity between India, not just India, but also from the Gulf, from Southeast Asia, connecting through Iran and connecting on to the Russian rail network. Physically, I think the connectivity is complete, but in terms of trade, it was a bit slow until recently because a number of com companies were, uh, private companies were a little hesitant to use that route on the fear that American sanctions that applied to Iran would in a sense, also apply to countries that use the transit route. Now, there is a certain area on American sanctions, and I think American sanctions in some instances are deliberately kept gray because 
it adds to the fear factor of uh, of uh, uh, small and medium enterprises uh, companies to do business with iraq however in the last two years the north south corridor has picked up pace because of geopolitical reasons as the well established european linkages of transportation from russia have been either closed down or have been suspended there is a greater incentive both for russian exporters and importers but also for country of companies in central asia in iran and in the caucasus armenia azerbaijan um and uh, and georgia to uh, 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 to complete the entire trans caucasus um region trade along the north south corridor route has uh, i think risen almost 100% 100% increase in the number of containers that are now moving through but that that fits into a larger reorganization of trade uh, energy and connectivity routes as a result of the russia ukraine war russia is now placing more emphasis on uh, the caspian sea connectivity caspian sea was considered one of the backwaters of the world you know just confined to the countries which are neighboring the caspian sea the caspian sea has become hugely important now just like this black sea has become hugely important you know the black sea and the caspian sea were seen as adjunct to the mediterranean and the indian oceans now they have become uh, uh, hot spots of activity in their own right and i think these sort of connections are being done and redone uh, <coughs> there is high priority importance that india is attaching to uh, india has already built a port the, called the jabahar port in iran uh which is useful not just for the north south corridor going up into central asia but it is also useful for going uh, for connecting into afghanistan armenia and azerbaijan both are very much interested in contributing to the success of the north south corridor because transit i mean it is good, a good boost to their own economies but it also gives them transit fees which is a huge uh which is a huge income earner for them so i think geopolitics is adding a new driver for older projects such as the north south corridor to to take place there is another project that india and russia are cooperating which is to revive an uh, old connectivity maritime connectivity between vladivostok and the eastern seaboard of india uh, you know which is chennai and other ports on the eastern seaboard uh, this was announced by prime minister modi when he was there in vladivostok in 2019 initially there was not much interest commercially but after the western links have been broken down uh, between russia and and europe there is a huge amount of interest on what can be done by russia through these through its eastern seaboard so the chennai vladivostok maritime corridor is also now going to pick up ambassador this is all again i mean it, it it's it's very it makes one in europe feel to some extent that lots of things are happening that we don't really have much understanding of and that the world is sorting itself out and moving forward 
and we are still very much stuck on some provincial matters in some ways in our in our own issues. But anyway, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. I wanted to ask uh, uh, um, another question because um, when I was, um, I, you know, first started to engage in Russian matters, this is more in the early 2000s, if I have to say, political matters. I mean, I remember that at that time, the Russians very much, they wanted to improve relations with China, but they wanted to have good relations with the West as well. They did not want to commit to one or the other, because obviously China is a much bigger country, it's a much, much bigger economy. Um, any relationship between China and Russia is not going to be a, 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 an alliance of friendship of complete equals, whatever people may say, I mean, whatever denials there are about this. Now, the relationship with the West hasn't worked out, and it doesn't seem to me that it's going to work out in the future. Could that role, from a Russian point of view, and, and I want to stress this is not Russia siding with India against China or China siding with Russia against India, but could it, from a Russian point of view, the fact that there's going to be an equally strong, at least an equally strong relationship with India, this country that, as I said, the Russians have this long, very friendly relationship with, could this establish a balance uh, um, with India again playing, if, if you like, the polar, the, the stabilizing pivotal, the pivot. So Russia, India, China, Ru Russia, but Every, th th this this creates a kind of stability and a kind of stable situation in of itself. And as I said, the Russians that way are able to maintain some of that strategic autonomy, which they and independence, which they so greatly value, and which they're so um, dismissive of the Europeans for having given up. Well. Uh the Russia-China relationship is hugely important for Russia. They share a very long border. From the Russian point of view, a settlement of the border in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, and the conclusion of the treaty saying that there are no more territorial problems and claims between the two countries is hugely important. Nothing can be more important for Russia than a quiet, uncontested border with China. As compared to the nightmare that they have in Ukraine, if the Russia-China border issue were to become, in a sense, active again, um, that is a nightmare of a completely different magnitude. But beneath that, the very shrewd Russian mind is very clear that good relations with China presently is important for Russia. But it is always has to be balanced with Russia's other relations because relationship of engagement can quickly slip into a relationship of dependency which the Russians do not want. 
Now, one of the spectacular failures of Western strategy, global geopolitical strategy, is having, uh, in a sense, uh, created this uh, train wreck in Europe on Ukraine. They have provided with Russia additional drivers to move towards China, which for the United States and for Europe is hugely self-defeating and in a long-term manner. It has also engendered this false notion that the United States can at the same time do dual containment against Russia and China simultaneously, uh, which, is, uh, which is just not possible, both in terms of <laughs> Sorry. in terms of policy, in terms of capabilities, and in terms of in terms of decision making bandwidth in in Washington. Russia is also aware that the three drivers of Russia China policy each would reach a point of optimal no returns. On the optimal level being reached, it would be a proposition of declining utility for Russia. In defense, China is no longer Russia's most important uh, export partner because China produces more and more stuff by itself. China now wants only the most sophisticated equipment from Russia, which Russia gives, uh, you know, on a case-by-case basis, but fully aware that any sophisticated equipment that it transfers to Russia, to China, could have long-term negative impact on its own security. In terms of energy, the big change in Russia-China relationship took place not in the year 2000, it took place in the year 2024 when Western sanctions, Western pressure on Russia reached a new phase uh, after the events of Maidan and Crimea in 2014-2015. So power of Siberia 1, which transports about uh, 50 billion cubic meters of gas from Russia to China, is a product of the post-24 um, period. Russia engaged with China on this, which is long-term preferential energy supplies, but is fully aware that if this were taken forward in an open-ended manner, in the long term, it would be self-defeating for Russia because it cannot have China as its sole customer. It would be a single, uh, uh, single customer market and China would not only dictate uh, the price, but also the quantity of which it would uh, import from, uh, from Russia. Now, that dilemma has again become, has re-emerged in a very major way after the European and Western sanctions on Russia, on Russian energy, because if Russia had about 250 to 60 billion cubic meters of gas that it was earmarked for, um, for exports to Europe are now will come down to a trickle and that all that gas is now available in Russia. 
Now, the second project that they're trying to do is the power of Siberia 2, which is another 50 billion cubic meters of gas. The key issue is not that China would be uh, is an insignificant customer for, uh, uh, for Russia. The key issue for Russians is whether China would become an exploitative customer, that it would dictate not just the quantity, but also the price. And if China were the only customer for Russia, then Russia would have no option but to sell gas at the, uh, on terms that, uh, that China would dictate. Clearly, Russia does not wish to be in that position. Third, Russia has emerged as a very major agro producer and, uh, you know, in terms of agro exports, it's a very major um, exporter of, and one of the main markets for, for, for Russia is China. Fourthly, the relationship between President Putin and President Xi Jinping is vitally important for them. It's a relationship that they have cultivated, and uh, it's very clear that unless you have a good relationship with President Xi, uh, relations with China today are impossible. Uh, you know, Russia has that advantage because it has, uh, you know, they have invested in that. Fifth, and the most important, do Russia and China see the United States threat in the same way? The answer is yes. And no. In terms of their commonality in a threat perception, uh, Russia and China see the United States as an aggressive power, which is uh, nibbling away at the peripheries of each of these countries. You know, the peripheries of Russia and Ukraine uh, in its space of uh, uh, what Russia considers important to itself. And, you know, the biggest periphery for China is the problem that is uh, emerging on Taiwan. This may not be entirely true, but this is how the two countries perceive. Now, is there something that the Russians can benefit from, uh, from China vis-a-vis -vis the confrontation with, uh, uh, with the United States? Uh, the answer is no, because the nature of confrontation of Russia with the United States is very different from the nature of confrontation that China has with the United States. Russia, Russia's engagement to the West is almost down, down to, uh, you know, uh, the fuel tank is almost empty. China does $1.4 trillion worth of trade with the United States and Europe. So Chinese objective is to see how they can split Europe from the United States and as we see the big parade of European leaders heading off to Beijing shows that uh, that is their main priority. For Russia, <clears throat> Russia has given up on Europe. Um, we can debate whether that was a sensible thing to do or not. Russia is now focusing on how to deal with the United States. I mean, it sees Europe as part of the larger problem that the United States, uh, the United States, I don't think uh, discounts uh, the aggressive potential of uh, China. Uh, there is a problem of of deterrence between Russia and the United States, as we uh, so the problems are very different. There is nothing 
that the Chinese can do short of direct military support and military intervention that can help the Russians fight, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Western uh, war that they need to fight in, in Europe. And the longer the war in Ukraine proceeds, the lesser the possibility that the United States will be able to shift its attention, its forces and material resources to the Indo-Pacific theater where the main confrontation with China. So geopolitically, in a fundamental sense, Russia and China have differing, uh, if not uh, contradictory uh, um, interests, they have differing interests. Whether they are able to reconcile these two and and create a united front on against the uh, against the uh, against America, it has been more said in rhetoric than in reality. Whether this will change in the future, let's wait and see. Yeah, I like what you said about the uh, the role of India, though, to make the which makes the relationship between Russia and China easier as well, because obviously. Is as a asymmetrical interdependence between them. That is, uh, Russia being more dependent on China than China is on Russia, obviously can create some apprehensions in Moscow. And I think that's why it was also uh, beneficial to see India enter organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, because back when there was a security organization, uh, purely, uh, you know, Russia was seen as having an advantage or leadership, if you will. But once it began to become an economic institution taking on this uh, economic competencies, uh, we saw that you know the mantle effectively passed over to China for leadership. And uh, my feeling in Moscow, at least, was always that uh, Russia had made its peace with China being the, the stronger economic power, but they would not accept any dominance. And again, the difference between dominance and leadership would be uh, if China can dictate terms. And... Uh, and uh, a good way of, uh, of avoiding this would be to bring in other great powers, that is uh, uh, primarily then India. So, uh, so if you have an organization like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, if you have only two major states, Russia and China, China can start to dictate things. Once you bring in a huge player like uh, India, now, yes, China will still be the leading economy, uh, but it can't dictate terms anymore. And for the Russians, that's, that's good enough for as good as it gets. And also it benefits for China because unless they have hegemonic aspirations, uh, this makes the Russians much more comfortable um, to, to gravitate more towards uh, China as opposed to staying in Europe. Um, uh, but uh, I, um, I just want to uh, switch gears a little bit because I was a bit interested about the, the Far East. You were talking before about this cooperation between, uh, well, the... Uh, the deals to set up this link again, or already been set up between India and Vladivostok. And well, as an ambassador, you had a, a very key role in developing in this uh, relationship with Russia, which included this uh, uh, Act Far East initiative by uh, Prime Minister Modi. Uh, I was just wondering uh, how how did that how has that developed, or what what are the main challenges or uh, in incentives, or that is the the Act Far East. Uh, uh, initiative of India. Yeah, thank you. And uh, on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, just to go back for a moment to the earlier point you made, you're absolutely right. Um, Russia has had a very keen interest in India coming into the SEO to add new balance, new ballast, so to speak, 
uh, in the SEO and uh, the our, our Russian friends tell us that their uh, their calculation was right. Uh, India coming into the SEO has given it new vitality. Uh, India coming into the SEO has made SEO actually more acceptable to other countries. So therefore, uh, the large amount of interest in the international uh, system from various countries to engage with the SEO, to, in fact, to join the SEO, uh, actually the turn took place when it uh, actually sort of uh, came in. Um, on the ACT Far East policy, Prime Minister Modi visited uh, uh, Vladivostok in September 2019. And he was the chief guest at the EEF. Uh, President Putin uh, had invited him to ex explain Russia's priorities in the, in the Far East. And uh, Russia's priorities in the Far East are twofold. One is to put in more, uh, more of their own resources to develop uh, the region, which is their right, uh, which is the requirement actually, but also to engage regionally with the other players which can add to the economic development of the Russian forest. And default option for that region was always China. I think the unsaid part in Russian policy in inviting Prime Minister Modi was the very Russian, very clear Russian preference that they did not wish to provide China monopoly access to the Russian Far East for various reasons. Um, uh, you know, Chinese uh, business activity tended to be very aggressive. It tended to be very corruptive. Uh, it tended to be not consistent with local environmental norms and things like that. And, you know, there are larger fears that uh, uh, a very dominant Chinese presence uh, sort of invoked in people's memories in that region. So uh, Prime Minister Modi announced uh, what is called the Act Far East policy. Uh, he also announced a billion dollars of soft credit for Indian companies to set up uh, there were a number of areas in which this could be done, starting from energy, connectivity, uh, cooking coal, um, agro products, diamonds, labor, migration, uh, Indian labor, shipbuilding, uh, tea, pharmaceuticals, um, uh, dairy products, um, ceramics. Uh, th there was a whole list of... Uh, items that were shortlisted, of which some of which have already taken off. India is today participating in um, shipbuilding in this Vesda shipyard I mean, as subcontractors to begin with, but we intend to take this forward. Indian uh, labor companies, uh, companies which supply manpower, actually stepped up to provide labor during the COVID period when there was, you know, there was a shutdown around and that is something that we can for education is another cooking coal and um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, cooperation in ports has hugely picked up the biggest of course drivers are um, are energy of course energy cooperation took a big jolt because of the economic sanctions that were imposed after 
the Ukraine war began in February 2022. But India stood its ground. While ExxonMobil exited from the Sakhalin 1 project, India stayed on. In fact, we intend to expand our stake in, in Sakhalin 1. India continues to engage with uh, major energy projects in the, uh, in the Vostok project. Uh, India is interested in acquiring uh, stakes in cooking coal companies. So the list can go on. Recently, there was a big Russian delegation that, is, that had come to Delhi. And we are picking up the pieces again because of the disruption of the COVID situation and the disruption of the initial phase of uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. But there is a clear intention on both sides to, to take this forward. Now, it is important for India to be engaged with one of the most vital areas of the Russian Far East and because of energy. But finally, I think it is also the geopolitical significance of, of that area. At one stage, we were quite keen to engage with Japan and have Japan-India-Russia cooperation in a trilateral sense. Japan initially engaged on this idea. But unfortunately, there has been a certain step back by Japan because Japan is now under tremendous pressure from the United States to scale back all activity and all engagement with, uh, uh, with Russia after the, after the events of February 2022. Uh, but even Japan, while it has backed off from this trilateral engagement with India on the Russian Far East, has decided to not to sell its stake in various energy projects in the Russian Far East. The Chennai-Vladivostok Maritime Corridor will one day merge into the Northern Sea Route projects that Russia is. Therefore, that will also take us, make India a more significant player in the Arctic. So these are all futuristic pro uh, projects, but projects with great potential because they are focusing in an area where the region itself is undergoing tremendous transformation. And India wants to be part and parcel of the transformation. We don't, we don't want to be spectators. We want to be, uh, we want to be participants. So to answer your question, what has happened to the Act, Act Far East policy? Um, there was a slight dip uh, because of the COVID situation and the Russia-Ukraine war. But we are quite keen, keen to pick up the pieces and take this forward. And Russia is very keen to have India as a partner, you know, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, what you said about this, you know, I think a lot of it also applies to the to, to Central Asia. Well, as you touched on already, this, uh, you know, because if there's only two players there. China and Russia, then uh, the fear is that it could take on a zero-sum dynamic where one gains, the other one loses influence. But uh, uh, but again, this uh, entry of uh, of India is uh, is then um, yeah beneficial uh, simply because it uh, uh, yeah just like in a, any Westphalian balance of power system, it prevents anyone from dominating, and then everyone can uh, well it, it eases uh, the pressures on each state uh, also. Uh, Often, when when we in the West engage with uh, any of Russia's neighbors, including Central Asia, uh, one objective already always there is to decouple the region from Russia. That this is uh, well, even a stated objective, which is uh, 
yeah, by, by definition, very zero sum. This idea that we have to, you know, liberate Central Asia from from Russia. I mean, if if you want to have autonomy for Central Asia, they should be able to diversify their ties. You know, not to be dependent too much on either Russia or China or you know. So I think uh, India again you know, tends to play a very positive role, which is yeah, why I also also hope it will get uh, it will assert a greater role in diplomacy, especially trying to figure out a solution between uh, NATO and Russia. Um, uh, unless we're going to wrap up, do, do you have something last you want to ask? Or add? Well, well, one actually very last question, the ambassador, since we have him. And um, again, this is perhaps looking forward. But of course, we've talked a lot about India and Russia. We've also talked about China. And sort of closing the circle, if you like, I mean, what are your feelings, Ambassador, about the possibilities of a improvement in Indian-Chinese relations? I say that because, of course, there have been times since independence when Chinese relations and Indian-Chinese relations have actually been very warm. There was a time in the 1950s when uh, the two countries worked very closely together or seemed to, and there seemed to be a good relationship between Zhou Enlai, who was the Chinese prime minister at that time, and uh, Jawaharlal Bandit Nehru, who was, of course, India's prime minister. Is there any prospect, in your opinion, or at least is there any feeling in India that perhaps one day, perhaps not soon, perhaps not tomorrow, but someday, we'll start to see some kind of moves in uh, towards a reconciliation between these two great Asian states, and just to mention, I mean, you mentioned the role that Buddhism from India, in, in Buddhism originated in India, played in Central Asia. Anybody who has any knowledge of China knows the enormous influence of Buddhism in China, too. And of course, in, in Buddhism came to China from India. So just 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 uh, just that one question. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know. Of course, India and China would need to find a way of uh, working together if there is to be an Indo-Pacific region that is stable, prosperous, and secure, and a global situation that is also um, uh, as a new equilibrium with the contribution of both India and China. Um, I would say that 10 years ago, the chances of this were much brighter than presently because uh, there is a certain transformation, the change that has taken place in China in the last several years where there is a certain impatience in uh, Chinese policies and Chinese actions abroad, especially in creating a space that is unilaterally determined uh, and asserted by, by Chinese leadership. That has become more pronounced now in the recent past. It's uh, partly that is due to, that it can be related to the fact that uh, Russian resource, Chinese resources and economic growth endow it with the material resources to pursue a more ambitious policy. Uh, but it also engenders in the larger international system a certain amount of concern, um, a certain amount of apprehensions 
on the direction that these uh, uh, policies can take. Smaller countries, less weaker countries uh, are uh, not in a position to stand up to China. But that is not the case with India. India, in fact, has made very clear that while we would like to have uh, good, productive, positive, friendly relations with China, that is a priority in our foreign policy. That can be taken forward only on the basis of uh, dialogue and discussion and, uh, uh, and a mutual accommodation of interests, uh, uh, a, a mutual respect in uh, in relations. One area where this manifests itself most vividly is the ongoing border problem we have with uh, with China border dispute. Uh, it's not an old, it's not a new dispute. It's a very old dispute. And India and China had constructed understandings, which basically both sides uh, implemented for almost two decades until about five or six, seven years ago, when China started unilaterally um, pushing the envelope on these understandings. And many of these understandings now remain only on paper because Russia's, uh, China tends to pursue a policy of wanting to pursue its interests more through assertion than through dialogue. Now, India is also aware that uh, Chinese uh, uh, problem uh, in our foreign policy is to be dealt with by India uh, through its own um, through its own policy analysis. Uh, we do not wish to become a handmaiden for other countries uh, in a conflictual relationship with China. Uh, so it is uh, you know we don't carry. Uh, other countries can against China with, with China, but our interest with China is something that we will take forward. So while we engage with China in somewhat limited manner now than in the past, uh, we do engage with them in the SCO, in the BRICS, in the G20, and uh, they'll be an important player. Uh, here again, I think the answer is very clear. Uh, India does want to have good relations with China. But this cannot be only on, on China's terms. And that is something that China will discover in the international system. The broader acceptability of China in the larger multilateral system will come if China were to prove itself to be different from the previous uh, big powers. I mean, you know, no major country in the world wants to displace one old time. Big power and replace it with a new time big power, which acts exactly as the previous. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the global south would be, uh, you know, would not be in favor of this. Uh, I wish the Chinese had the good sense uh, and the wisdom to to make this difference. Uh, but the fact is that China has risen; it is one of the big players in the world. But China, which should also realize that this space. Uh, that it wishes to occupy uh, also belongs in a sense to India because India is also in a sense reoccupying space in the international system that it had. You know, 300 years ago, uh, India and China, between them, constituted 
more than 30-40% of the world's GDP. Put together, I think it was almost 50% of the world's GDP. From that, we fell to almost 3-4-5% of the world's GDP. Uh, slowly, we are now regaining, uh, you know, we, uh, we've seen China's rise. India's rise is also inevitable. Uh, but I think it's good for us and for the good for the world that uh, um, the Chinese in particular do not see this as, uh, as, a, as a zero-sum game that anything that India gains is at China's expense. That is not so. But we would also not like to believe that uh, the sole purpose of multipolarity is to crown China as the preeminent world power. Uh, you know, that is clearly not on the cards. Well, thank you so much. I, I wanted to just thank you for your excellent answers to all our questions, to, sorry, to my questions. Glenn. No, I just want to say the same. And uh, yeah, that's one of the things perhaps that uh, surprised me a bit over the past years that more hadn't been done to uh, improve this relationship between China and India, especially especially now that we see China on this uh, huge uh, diplomatic uh, peace offensive that this wouldn't be a priority because obviously if, uh, if Chinese-Indian relations would uh, unravel, then you know it might alienate uh, in India, make it vulnerable to some kind of a American-led uh, anti-Chinese uh, uh, initiative. Meanwhile, if India and China can resolve, for example, these border issues, you would have uh, yeah, the two giants. <laughs> uh, they both seemingly have so much to gain. So, uh, well, uh, again, hopefully that's to come. And uh, it, it has perplexed me a bit because it seems like there would be all the systemic incentives would be in place there uh, for uh, yeah, these two countries to begin to harmonize the relations. Um, uh, anyways, uh, we've taken almost two hours of your <laughs> time, so I just want to thank you so much again, Ambassador, for for your time to discuss with us. It's been yeah, a great pleasure, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you again. Uh, yes, hopefully this year, if you're attending any of the same conferences. Well, thank you very much to both of you for your questions and the patience with which you have uh, you know listened to my rather lengthy answers. But I think. These are important, important issues, and uh, you know, uh, clarity on uh, genesis, on purpose, uh, and uh, the way forward. I think is uh, only adds to the good discussion. And thank you for making it possible today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again.